Hello, I'm Kathy. And I'm Gary. And this is Torah Talk. Welcome to Torah Talk, the intersection of the mundane and the miraculous. Here we have bold conversations about faith, culture, and politics, and where we fit into God's plans in the 21st century. If you could partner with God, would you? Okay, I've said it again. Here we go. Here we go another time, Gary. I'm reading another really great book. <laughs> you know, I can think of a lot worse pastimes, Kathy. That's exactly. awesome that you do so That's much That's my, my favorite, favorite pastime. Yeah. So this time I'm reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Yeah, it's a good and book. And I have to admit, of all the books I've read... Besides the Bible, this one has probably humbled me the most and really, really made me think. Yeah, I, if you're not thinking while you're reading his book, <laughs> nothing will make you think. Nothing will make you think. It's exactly. very convicting. Yes, absolutely. Ooh. You know, in the foreword of this book, um, Eric Metaxas writes, at the heart of Bonhoeffer's theology is as bracing a sentence as one may encounter. And this is the sentence. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it's that makes you straightforward. think. Straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not the it's not the uh, fluffy message that we hear in the church today. Well, no, part, not at all. You know, that is just not the advertising campaign. That's not what people would be paying their big <laughs> not, ad agencies for. Buy exactly our product secret. and then you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not exactly seeker friendly, is it? Exactly. Uh, no, it's not. You know, so the implications of this statement are both spiritually and physically enormous. And it leaves really nowhere for Christ followers to hide. There's just nothing to hide behind at, mm. at all. And yet, we as followers of Christ try to hide from this reality most of our lives. That's mm. the natural human reaction, fleshly reaction. Sure, Nobody wants to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> spiritual, I mean, in any way, we don't even want to be uncomfortable. Yeah, no, no, exactly. We, we've, that's been proven recently. Yes. I really want to share with the audience who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, how he lived out his faith, even unto death, because he did die in obedience and service to God. Because of his faith, he stood up to Hitler and the evil Nazi regime and practiced to the nth degree, the Christ-like love we would have for our neighbors, that we would give our lives for them. The ironic thing is that in his book, Bonhoeffer literally invites all believers to do the same, to mm -hmm. give up their lives. So after this message, let's talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship, and let's talk Torah. For over 25 years, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people escape poverty and persecution. In fact, almost 80,000 Jewish people have now returned to Israel with our help. The average cost to rescue one Jewish person is $360. Your gift of just $30 a month over one year can help return a Jewish person to Israel and restore their hope for a better future. Please go to EzraInternational.org and give your best gift today. So, Gary, we've been talking, we've talked about Bonhoeffer before, mm -hmm. and uh, what what do you remember, some of your first, because, uh, I, you know, we've thought highly of him. Oh, absolutely. My, my first recollection was uh, 
you know the names the names of those who were helping Jews in during during the Holocaust. You know, when names like uh, Oscar Schindler, Corey Tin Boom, uh, Martin Niemöller, mm -hmm. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right. I you know that was my earliest memories. Wallenberg, memory. I think, is in oh, there. Oh, yeah, Mark Wallenberg, yeah, because yeah. he was from Hungary. But those those were the names initially. You know, since then I've learned of other you know uh, events and things of that nature. But initially, those were the names that stood out to me as people who made a difference in a time, you know, one of the most horrific times in world history. Yes. You know, as I mentioned before the break, I've been humbled by reading Bonhoeffer's book. And it's not just the book, um, his beliefs, his words, and he, he lived out his beliefs. You know, his life and his death was a true example of his faith and of the idea of faith without works is dead. Mm -hmm. That's the perfect example of living and dying out your faith. Um, he firmly knew what it meant to heed Yeshua's call in Luke 9, 23, when Jesus said, um, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. You know, and he added, he added in his book a, a sense of uh, urgency immediately. Don't hesitate. And he goes into some examples of that, but no hesitation. Drop it and go. Which yeah. is what the disciples, the disciples all did. had to yes, do, they all did. and um, that willingness that you you give this up, you give up your life immediately, mm -hmm. take up that cross immediately. It's not something down the road, right? Yeah, you know, the version of the book that I'm reading of the cost of discipleship um, was published in 2018 with a forward, as I said earlier, by Eric Metaxas, and the book also included a really interesting kind of biography about Bonhoeffer's right at the beginning of the book, and it was written by a German legal scholar who immigrated to England during the Nazi dictatorship, and his name was Gerhard Liebholz, and in describing Bonhoeffer, Liebholz said uh, that Bonhoeffer's most sincerely held belief is that the call of God obliges us to make use of our new freedom in Christ with a deep feeling of responsibility. As followers of Christ, our spiritual freedom must be bent toward, now listen to this, the maintenance of God's divine order. That is huge. That's, that's, that's a powerful statement. How profound. We've talked about this idea before that God so loved his order. Remember? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, our, our, our favorite verse, um, God so loved the world is really cosmos in Greek. And that is God so loved his order that he gave his son to die, to maintain his order, his divine order. Mm -hmm. And Bonhoeffer understood that the duty of the Christian was to maintain this order. You know, Kathy, I, really, this is what it's been all about since the beginning. You know, when, when God placed man and woman in the garden, he wanted them to maintain it. He wanted them to tend it, to keep, you know, this idea, you and I love this quote, you know, if you could partner with God, would you? That's what it's been about from the beginning. Yes. You know, God using his creation, his, his men and women to carry out the plan on earth. You know, Yeshua died for that order. So what yes, Bonhoeffer is saying is that we should be willing to die for that order. And I would say that we don't always think of what that actually means. What are the real implications of that? Of that? And for Bonhoeffer, it was that Christians were never to be passive and to hide behind the walls of the church. Mm. We must 
actively recognize when God's order is being compromised and step in, mm. not just stand back and, you know, sit at the pews and pray about it, but step in to maintain that order. You know, and for Bonhoeffer, a Christian really had no choice but to act, to suffer, and if need be, die yeah. to maintain this order. Yeah, he, he was quite serious about it. And obviously, we've seen that in biblical examples of that throughout, you know, that this is, it is a, a life committed to God's will. Yes. You know, Bonhoeffer put the blame of the rise of Hitler and Nazism squarely at the feet of the Christian church. Mm. That um, is a, a big deal, okay? That's quite an accusation. So after this break, let's talk about that. So I think it would be kind of helpful to do like a little history lesson about the church in Germany, okay? And um, I, I did a bit of research on this and particularly found some good information at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, their website. And so this is what I found. It said, the population of Germany in 1933 was around 60 million. And almost all those Germans were Christian, belonging to either the Roman Catholic church, which was about 20 million, or the Protestant, which was about 40 million churches, a lot of those being Lutheran. The Jewish community in Germany in 1933 was less than 1% of the population. Mm. So it's never that the Jews are very many, even never, though they're always everywhere. the greatest they're always threat. The smallest, yeah. yes. So how did Christians and the churches in Germany respond to the Nazi regime and its laws, particularly in the persecution of the Jews? Uh, you know, we yeah. find that, unfortunately, the, the racialized anti-Jewish Nazi ideology converged with anti-Semitism that was historically widespread throughout Europe and had deep roots in Christian history. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's that is a fact. And we'll talk later uh, a little bit about, you know, um, Bonhoeffer's what I would say maybe lack of, of connecting the dots between Luther and what is happening now in Germany in his lifetime. And it's always harder in your own lifetime. It's always so much easier for you and I in retrospect to see it. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a quote here from a German during the Nuremberg trials. And I think it's, it, 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 it's significant in that uh, he recognized the church's role. And, and we'll talk... And this was after the war? This was after the war. Right. You know, again, retrospect, but he he's talking about the church's role, and that's you know that's what we're talking. We're going to address both the Roman Catholic and the Protestant world here, but first I wanted to read this quote. Um, he was asked about how six million people could be systematically murdered by the German people. You know, really, we know among the, at the time they were among the most advanced societies in the world, right? Oh yes, all the universities and sure. everything that were there. Oh yeah, the scientists. They were enlightened, right? Yes, enlightened. And yet they could do this. And when he was asked how that could happen, his quote was, and I'm quoting: "I am the I am of the opinion that when for years, for decades, the doctrine is preached that Jews are not." even human, such an outcome is inevitable. There it is. I mean, a German uh, general recognizing that this preaching in the churches was was uh, part and parcel to the, you know, the conditioning that went on for 
in the case of the Protestant world, 400 years. In the case of the Roman Catholic world, for much, much longer. Yes, fact, going uh, back to Luther. Uh, going back, we go back to, to Luther. To Luther for the Protestants. For the, for the Protestants, right, 400 yes. years. And going back all the way to uh, the 4th century uh, with the Catholic world. You know, a quote from, from Adolf Hitler was that he was, when he after he made his treaty with the Vatican, he says, I'm only continuing the work of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that scary? And I'm just going to give you a, a quick few examples from the Catholic world, and then we'll look at the, the, Luther, the uh, Protestant world before we move on. Uh, but all the way back to 306 AD, this was the Synod of Elvira, there was a prohibition for intermarriage between uh, Christians and Jews. Okay, when you when you fast forward to 1935, there was a uh, law called the Law of Protection of German Blood, and that was the, the same, same prohibition, yes. right? Uh, same same synod, Elvira 306, said that Jews were not permitted, uh, Jews and Christians were not permitted to eat together. Well, in 1939, Jews were barred from dining cars so that they couldn't eat with the other Germans. Uh, a couple more examples. Um, in 681, this is the Synod of Toledo, the burning of Talmud and other books. Well, of course, we know what the Nazis did to, to the Jewish books. Um, and then marking, this is the infamous one, the marking of Jewish clothes with a badge in the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215 and we know that that happened in Nazi Germany with the marking of the yellow star. So, of course, the Catholic world had its role for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. While we look at the Protestant world and Martin Luther, and many still hold him up as the great reformer today. You know, we know and that he, he did some great things. Did, I think that's important to recognize. It is, it is important to recognize. And I, and I may be one of the ones, stubborn ones who will not quote Martin Luther because of what he did later. But Martin Luther did start... A great Re reformation. Yes. We know that. Getting back to the scriptures. Yes, it was obviously an important role. Right. But then in his latter years, and some say he was suffering from mental illness, and you know there were there are other other illnesses that I won't go into. <laughs> but it, it is it's important to note his role in it when he wrote the book on the Jews and their lies. He talked about setting fire to synagogues and schools, the Jewish schools. And of course, we know that happened. Mm -hmm. He said Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed. He said that their prayer books and Talmud, Talmudic writings uh, were idolatry and their lies and curses and blasphemies that are taught should be taken from them. He said their rabbis should be for, uh, forbidden from teaching at pain of loss of life and limb. And if that wasn't enough, he, he urged that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews and that their cash and treasuries of silver and gold should be taken from them. That Jews could do, uh, all they could do was have a flail and an axe, a hoe and a spade, and put it, put it in their hands, and the young, strong Jews and Jewesses should earn their bread by the sweat of their, brow. of their brow. Now we look at the Holocaust, we look at the labor camps. This is exactly what Hitler put into practice. Why so many didn't protest? Because they had been conditioned for 400 years with words like that. That is, um, it's almost too much to to even comprehend 
And yet, I think as a church, we need to face it. And the we church do. did begin to face it after after World War II when the concentration camps were opened. When they okay, when Eisenhower went in and said, let's film all of this, right? Right. And, and um, people saw it, and they they that was a, uh, a change to, to some degree. Not completely, because we're still dealing we're still with dealing a lot with it, but, of that. But I think that's a good segue to show where where did the, the resistance start? Right. Then we can come back to to, to Bonhoeffer. To Bonhoeffer. Because we do yes. believe that that's where the, the resistance began. He started the movement that, but, well, you know, today we're still really a part of in I, a sense. I, I think you're exactly right on that. Yeah. You know, in uh, 1920, the, the Nazi party had a platform, you know, like they always, we mm -hmm. always do. Okay. The party has a platform and, um, it said it was interesting. And I think we've read this before in another podcast, but it said, here's the platform. We demand the freedoms of all religious confessions in the state insofar as they do not jeopardize the state's existence. <laughs> mm. Okay, that's fine. You can have your religion as long as it doesn't cause any problem for the state. <laughs> okay. The, the, the party upholds the point of view of a positive Christianity. Okay, so there's that word Christianity. And, all right. Positive. Too. A positive. Good feeling. It's good. Word. Boy, we feel good. Yeah. Without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. It makes, this makes me laugh. Okay. It combats the Jewish material materialistic spirit at home and abroad mm -hmm. and is convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can only be achieved from within on the basis of a common good before individual good. Oh my gosh, you could just spend a whole podcast on every line yeah, of this, yeah, you know, the but, but good. we'll go into the Jewish materialistic spirit at home and abroad, um, that, that this positive Christianity was supposed to be combating mm -hmm. this Jewish materialism. Yeah, okay. And of course you now you've made, you, you're making an enemy of the oh. Jews, you're combating, and that is that's unifying a a a, uni, uh, a, uh, a joint well, enemy, a common uh, enemy. Yes, yeah, so that the state and now the church can mm -hmm. join together because mm -hmm. we have a common enemy. Exactly. And the church interpreted it that way because historically, the German church viewed itself as one of the pillars of German culture and society, with a you know like kind of a theologically grounded tradition of loyalty to the state. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was their background. So during the 1920s, in a, in a movement emerged within the German evangelical church called the German Christians. And the German Christians, this is interesting, embraced many of the natural nationalistic and racial aspects of Nazi ideology. They even, you know, they 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 had displayed these the flags of the Nazi um, regime. They were very, very supportive mm -hmm. of this this strong nation. Okay, right. the, we see this today with the perversion of people. People claim, and I know, I know that there are some radical views, but people claim that being um, pay, overly patriotic and loving your country, uh, they like to compare that to Nazism and fascism. And and I think those those claims, in the most part, are just false. I, I, I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that. We're not talking about here right. what they were trying to do there was create kind of a national Reich church, yes. okay, which everything in the American constitution and everything Separation. says, don't do that, yes, okay, exactly. you can't have a state church. So what they were, what the German Christians had was kind of, they supported a Nazified version of Christianity, okay? Yeah. Um, so the church also had a history of believing that Christians should not get involved in politics, that their role was to pray and preach the gospel. 
So by the time the church realized what was actually happening, it was too late. They had lost all of their religious liberties. Yes, they did. And you know, uh, there's a there's a passage, a quote from Bonhoeffer in his book that he's using uh, a little bit different context, but I think it applies here in that he said, keep on posing problems. This is the church. Keep on posing problems and you will escape the necessity of obedience. In other words, if somehow the word of God interferes with this loyalty to the the Nazi Reich, then, you know, that's a problem. Yes. So, you know, you, you pose that problem and you, 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 you escape the necessity of being obedient to the word of God. Oh my goodness. Well, you, you, you are obedient. You, you pick who you're going to serve. Exactly. Right. You're going to serve the state or you're going to serve uh, the God of Israel. Yeah. So uh, against the kind of uh, German Christian group, this uh, new group emerged called the Confessing Church. And so it was in opposition to the German Christians. And its founding document was the Barman Confession of Faith and declared that the church's allegiance was to God and scripture, not a worldly Fuhrer, okay, mm. um, strong leader. So both the Confessing Church and the German Christians remain part of the larger German evangelical church, and they but they had a struggle. Okay, there was a struggle within the church during this time, and it was a it was an ongoing debate and struggle for control between those who sought a Nazified church, those who opposed it, and the so-called neutral church leaders. Mm. Okay, whose priority was just avoid a church schism and avoid conflict with the Nazi state. I actually worry more about that group, Gary. Yeah. That, that just wants to avoid all conflict. Don't stand up, kind of stay th- behind the scene. I and, think there's know. a term for that. Isn't it lukewarm? Yeah, right. that's the lukewarm. Mm, okay. <laughs> you know, we talked, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I, like I said, I think that's more, dangerous yeah i think it's and, more and dangerous than lukewarm so too. i, I think, think so too because they, they think they're, they're accomplishing nothing and they think they're safe and warm and they're in, in cozy in their churches and uh in the meanwhile the, the, the world is going to hell exactly you know? now we had said earlier the catholic church was significantly smaller about half the size mm-hmm. of the protestant church and they weren't quite as tied to the state as the protestant church was mm-hmm. but generally the leadership of both the protestants and the catholics was caution they tried not to upset the Nazi leadership by protesting they, against it. They tried to compromise uh, with yeah. the Nazi state leadership where possible. And, you know, there were certainly people within both of these um, uh, groups that were concerned about these notions of Arianism. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, uh, that was probably the biggest concern with um, the confessing church was the concerns about there was something called an Aryan clause, and it was a there was a proposal to say that within the church you couldn't have membership in the church unless you were of Aryan descent. Yeah. Okay. So. Jews who came to believe in Christ could not join the church, yeah. and the confessing church was like, no, they're not yeah. having that. And I think I think this is where Bonhoeffer first realized there was a problem yes. and got involved in this movement. I think he later realized the the error of you know the the persecution of the Jewish people to, to a greater degree. But initially, and I think this was one of the criticisms of him was that oh it was just because he wanted them to become Christians. Christians. But initially, at least he initially at least he started. Uh, yeah, somewhere. he started. He knew he knew something was wrong. He yes. knew that this exclusion idea was was wrong. 
You know, throughout this whole late 1930s period, there was virtually no public church opposition to anti-Semitism or any readiness by church leaders to kind of publicly oppose the regime um, uh, at all for, like, state-sanctioned violence against the Jews. Like you said, they Mm. were kind of focusing on, wait, within our churches, we want the Jews to be able to become Christians, you know? Um, So... There were people within both groups, obviously, that that became part of rescue missions, resistance activities. And Bonhoeffer was involved in these resistance activities against the Nazis in in efforts to try to get Jews out of Germany. And so he was involved in resistance. But I'd still say that even a greater thing. And actually, that's what he was murdered for. Yeah. But but what he was really also trying to do was to wake up the church. That's what he saw his real goal was. So, you know, this was the climate that Bonhoeffer was dealing uh, with. And for him, it really wasn't enough to follow Christ just by preaching, teaching, writing, standing in the pulpit. You know, it's very comfortable and easy to do. But he called, you know, he called for Christian action and self-sacrifice. And he considered, this is interesting, self-righteousness and complacency as great sins against the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I, I totally agree. You know, when you've heard me talk about the, the, the rabbis would say there's only two things, Chalul Hashem and, and uh, uh, Kedusha Hashem. You either sanctify the name of God or you desecrate, desecrate the name of God, and by your inaction, you are desecrating the name of God. Right. You know, that's very similar. Bonhoeffer said, if we are Christians, there's no room for expediency, no room for convenience, or it's one or the other. Right. You're doing one or the other. Right. Okay. So, you know, Bonhoeffer did not think that, you know, you should hide in the church, you shouldn't pray. He said we had to get out, respond to evil, we had to stop it in its tracks. And I found this uh, quote from him to be very interesting when he was talking about stopping it, stopping evil in its tracks. He said, it's not only my task to look after the victims of madmen who drive a motor car in a crowded street, but to do all in my power to stop their driving at all. Mm. That was very motivating for him. Yeah. And that's where he then started to get involved in the resistance to stop Hitler from even even getting to these positions where these Jews were rounded up in cattle cars. Right. And okay. Ha- and you had know. we had like more more of him, they, we, we could have avoided a massacre. Yes. Uh, uh, but but we didn't. We didn't unfortunately, obviously. yes. And so Bonhoeffer recognized as a believer that National socialism, and I'd say socialism in general, every version of it, okay, uh, was an attempt to make history without God and to found it on man's strength alone. Yes. Okay, that's that's that... um, that's um, Nimrod. Yeah, you know yeah, that's the Tower talk, of Babel. We've that's talked <laughs> about this before. Yes, obviously to to um, draw men away from God and think that they can do it on their own, and that's humanism. It's 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 progressivism. progressivism it's, yes, 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 it's this whole woke business today. Yes, it's, it's absolutely. So when Hitler came to power in the 1930s, Bonhoeffer so much recognized that something was wrong that he abandoned his very comfortable academic career and began denouncing national socialism 
immediately. I mean, mm -hmm. Gary, like within days, okay, yeah. of Hitler coming to power. Um, he said it was a political system that was corrupted, and it had grossly misled a nation, and it made a Fuhrer its idol and God. Mm. So he was forced to make this decision, not only to stand up to the Nazis, but also to work for the defeat of his own nation, since only then could did he see that Germany as a Christian and European country could be saved. He had to Germany had to be defeated yeah. with his leadership as Hitler. That was the only way to save Germany. And, That's and, what he saw. He, he recognized the, the gravity. I mean, they, I mean, my gosh, it, you know, and so few did. Right. They're, 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 this led to millions upon millions to die because of this man. You know, he, Bonhoeffer preached that the popular German idea of a strong leader, which is what Fuhrer means, okay, mm -hmm. was not... God's idea of leadership. This right. was a mistaken idea that made an idol of the leader. Mm -hmm. um, he called it even a misleader, not a leader. Mm -hmm. So he said that the teacher and office that turn themselves into God mock God. Okay, there we go yeah. again. There we are with Nimrod. Yeah, okay. And I, you know, Kathy, and this might not be a popular statement with, uh, with our conservative audience, but I would warn people with our leaders even today, uh, listen, don't get me wrong, I love his policies, but Donald Trump is not God. That's right. That's right. right. Absolutely. And I think that's important. And, you know, we get back to this idea of leadership. The Bible talks about who leaders are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And in Matthew 20, and it talks about a leader, um, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slaves. The, the son of man did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. That's the example of leadership. Yeah. And so you look at that and you're like, whoa, this is not what Hitler's doing. Mm -mm. That's it. And, Most you know, don't. not to be uh, even first Peter says you're to be shepherds. Once again, the idea of serving is in first Peter five, two, three, be eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted you, but be examples to the flock. Very clear what a leader should be. Okay, um, a shepherd caring for the people. We need to keep this in mind, um, too, as we look at this elite leadership in our country, not yeah. caring at all about anybody else, no matter what their words say. It's always oh, their yeah. actions yeah. And, and you, by well, which you know them. It, it's all about consolidating power for themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I don't. I, again, yeah, like you said, I don't care what their words say. We can see the policies of, of the, the radical left. Uh, all about consolidating power for themselves and yes. not the good of the people. Yes, but what happened here was because the church allowed itself to get so far off base with this concept of leadership, even something like that. It wasn't like, okay, I'm getting off base on the gospel. Okay, big thing. Mm -hmm. Leadership, you're getting off base on one thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh, look what happened to it, getting off base in one area. That's all it takes. Uh, huh. You know, I mean, it, 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 Torah talks about hitting the target. I mean, when when you think about launching a spacecraft into space, if you're off one degree, exactly. you know, you're going to miss your target by millions of miles by the time you reach your destination. Oh, that's a really good example for those of us in the space coast, exactly. right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bonhoeffer knew that God was calling him to wake up the church. Mm -hmm. And with most people who were called to that, like the prophets, his cries fell mostly on deaf yeah. ears. 
it, it seemed always a remnant or a minority or what here. You know, we just uh, had our Torah portion with Caleb and Joshua trying to quiet the crowd, but the people went along with the crowd. That's it's right. So two out of thing. ten there yeah. Yeah. were and, the and, only ones that were for God and, and the rest case, were against. I think the odds were even worse. I, I think mean, you're right. Bonhoeffer and a very few who were Very few. Uh, so in 1935, Bonhoeffer started an illegal seminary to train men who understood what it meant to follow Christ with their whole being to be true true disciples. Now, the Gestapo shut down the seminary two years later, so Bonhoeffer took it underground. He didn't stop, and the Nazis forbade him then to preach and to teach. And when he published a book about the Psalms, the Nazis forbade him to publish. So that entire kind of Old Testament was like too Jewish for them, okay? You know, that is the tragedy of the church still today, is this idea that somehow the, the, the older testament the tanakh too jewish is too jewish or that it's done done away with or you know we and look what we've done we, we you've torn the foundation out from underneath who we are really right. who we're supposed to right. be and sets ourselves and set up conditions under which these kinds of things can exactly. happen that's where error comes from when you if you that's why you kathy you've always heard me use the expression or the idea of looking back in a you know rowing in a rowboat you're looking from whence you came with the with the future behind you you don't you can't see into the future you can't see into the future but if you lose sight of what you your foundation where you've come from this is where error comes from that's right you know so Bonhoeffer realized pretty quickly that he couldn't fight in Hitler's army on behalf of uh, on behalf of the Nazi state. So he took advantage of an opportunity to go teach in the United States. But it was really interesting. Once he got in the states, almost immediately he realized yeah. he was in the wrong place. It reminded me of the story of Jonah. Uh-huh. Okay, and he said, "Go to Nineveh," and then he you know he gets on the ship and jumps overboard. <laughs> so it's like Bonhoeffer knew immediately that. He was in the wrong place. And so instead of staying for what was planned to be three years, he was back in Germany in 26 days. What a man of conviction. Wow. And he said he'd already been through. The Nazis already didn't like him. He had a mark on his back. Yeah. And he came back. He came back. That's a conviction because he cost him his life. Exactly. So what he did, okay, interesting, um, and some people say controversial, he accepted an invitation to work in the German military intelligence. So giving the appearance, okay, he'd come to his senses, he was ready Mm. to support the Nazi cause, but really it was going to act as a double agent, okay? And he was invited to join in that conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, Mm -hmm. you know? So this dramatic action to become a spy and part of the plot to kill Hitler, it's been a source of debate and controversy. But the reality was that Bonhoeffer believed that to sit on the sidelines while innocents were being murdered would make him complicit in their murders. That's 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 powerful, and and he, and he that's obviously what drove him back to Germany. Absolutely. Um, but uh, in order to 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 stop this man, I mean, had they been successful again, how many? And they were not successful, obviously. You know. Or could have been saved. Yes, you know. Yeah. You know they, I, that's what we said. They were not successful. Bonhoeffer was arrested and charged with con, a conspiracy first to rescue the Jews. He was charged with these contempts, I mean, this coup thing. Mm-hmm. And in April 1943, and then after, uh, the, so after the coup in 44, his, he, they connected him not only to trying to rescue Jews, but 
this bigger trying to kill Hitler thing. Okay, so he was moved to a Gestapo prison in Berlin. And in 1945, when an air raid destroyed the camp he was in, he was transferred to Buchenwald and eventually to the concentration camp in Flossenburg. And on April 9th, 1945, he was executed just days before the camp was liberated by the Allied forces. Oh, it's tragic. I mean, it's it's a war, tragic. the war ended shortly thereafter. Days, yeah. days, days, oh. days after that. Mm. He didn't know that, of course. No. He, he couldn't have known that was what was going to happen, but that's, whoa. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just amazing. That's, this is real faith. This is, you know, someone, someone say what a hero or a brave, but, but his conviction is at the heart of that. His love for God, his love for the Word of God is what drove him to, to sacrifice. And it, maybe he didn't intend it. You know, obviously, he didn't want to get caught, right. but uh, he was willing to do that, yeah. and, he, and he paid the ultimate price. Wow. You know, what's interesting when you go look up Bonhoeffer and you start reading about him, you see that there is controversy that swells, kind of swirls around him mm-hmm. and about what he did and so forth. And, you know, let's face it, we, we've said he was born in a German church climate that was heavily influenced by Martin Luther's right. anti-Judaism, okay? And the church sentiment at the time was that the Jews were guilty of deicide, they had killed Christ, okay, mm-hmm. and the they were charged with legalism, okay. We heard that before. Oh yeah, uh, always, all the time. So, in a sense, it kind of set up an atmosphere well where they were guilty and deserving of punishment, okay. Yeah, and we we addressed that, of course, with the the things that I wrote about or, or read about the church. Um, and this is important. I'm glad, Kathy, that we're addressing this because I'm sure that uh, you know there are those out there that are aware of this fact. Um, but we again, we're looking in retrospect. Um, Bonhoeffer grew up in this atmosphere. He did not recognize. As I said, I don't think initially he made he didn't connect the dots between Luther's policies and what was going on right before his eyes because he was it was too close to him. It, it was, was too it was close. Right there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, we've addressed in our former former podcast many times these charges, okay, that the church continues to this day really to bring up, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, this issue of deicide, you know, the Christ killers, okay, right. that's the Christ killers. Okay. Clearly, clearly the Jews did not kill Christ. You know, Yeshua laid down his life to reestablish that relationship between God and his chosen people and all the people on the earth mm-hmm. that was broken by sin. Every one of us sins, okay? So it's not the Jews who killed Christ. All of us killed Christ, really, through our sin, you know? So the thing is, nothing short of the way in God's infinite plans and wisdom, Mm -hmm. nothing short of Christ's willing sacrifice to die would rectify this situation, okay? So it wasn't that the Jews killed him. We can say that all of us, that was all of us, you know, that, that are guilty of that. And legalism. Okay, Gary, (laughs) how many times have we dealt with that issue of legalism? Okay, because we get charged with being legalistic all the time simply because we want to obey our Heavenly Father. And and, and it's a, a, a love response. We want to obey His instruction. If we could, you know, we've allowed the uh, the church and the world to control the narrative, as as often happens. <laughs> Never and, and and yet, what we're doing is, uh, you know, uh, obeying 
the instruction of a loving father as a loving re- a response to that father. And if, if we could, again, convey that and live that and, and the church could see that that's what is going on here, think of the power and the difference that it would make in the church that has fallen victim to cheap grace, which I know is the subject of our no, next, of our next podcast. But, you know, yeah, I think that that idea, the Jews have... Okay, we know that during Yeshua's lifetime, the 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 religious uh, leadership of the time had gotten very far off base, and yes. they had created the traditions of man. And basically, the thinking was: you engage in these, and this is how you you uh, hold right. this onto this relationship with 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 the Father. Right. Okay, and that would be a definition of legalism. I mean, I think definitely again, context, context, context. He was fighting the, the corrupt leadership of the day and they had fallen into religion, a religiosity, a, a legalism that these are the things you must do. And the heart and the spirit, the faith wasn't connected to those actions. Right. But throughout the thousands and thousands of years of Jewish history, we have countless, countless Jewish people, people that did not do that okay that absolutely recognized god's grace and responded to his grace with obedience in the exact same way you and i are doing amen you know from uh from abraham okay from in a position of love and faith that's right so he says get up and go and he trusted he recognized god's grace and he obeyed and he went I'm glad. I love the way you put that because that's how we need to talk. When we're talking about the Tanakh, we should be using that word grace more often. And, you know, he recognized, you said he recognized God's grace. Mm -hmm. When Abraham was approached by God, it started with God. So he recognized the grace in that. He he didn't do anything to earn it to to that point. God initiated the contact. Right. And, And the stories throughout the Bible are exactly the same way with the great leaders is God initiates something with us and then we can choose how we respond to that you know so that's uh, this idea that grace only starts in the book of Matthew right is 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 so erroneous and um, destructive I think um, I, I that may be controversial to say like you said but yeah, it's it's I'd... a big big problem and it's it is what contributed to what Bonhoeffer was trying to deal with even back then. Exactly. In fact, you said it was destructive. So I will quote Bonhoeffer what he said about it. He said, the word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, bingo, right bingo, on. Bingo, right. You know, so what's interesting is that Within the Christian church, the church didn't start to, more as a whole, recognize or repent of their inherently, I'd say, anti-Judaic beliefs until after those concentration camps were opened Mm -hmm. after World War II, and they saw what their thinking, the climate that it had created. And there was a a movement of repentance within the church at that time. It was what allowed the creation of the nation of Israel is, oh my gosh, what did we do? Yeah, the horror, the horror had an immediate react. There was an immediate response and reaction that allowed that birth. But really, I think replacement theology did not 
even I mean it didn't fade away and, and it even didn't get broke you know we didn't even make a dent in it until after the creation of the state you know I mean it, then then people started saying well wait a minute if the Jews are back and oh, yes. Israel is back yes and then they, they started okay now maybe we need to rethink but not all. No, Just no, because we're still we're still dealing with replacement theology in the church. And it was this replacement theology that set up this climate. OK, yes. God is done with these Christ killers. Basically, mm-hmm. we've replaced them as the true Israel. Right. OK. And so that sets up that environment that allows them to be persecuted. And yes, like you said, we recognize the horror. So mm-hmm. so we're like, OK, we need a place for them. And then you're right. Then people saw oh my goodness israel was reestablished. wait yeah, maybe we're yeah. not replacing but it still exists oh, yeah, within absolutely. the church yeah. and it exists in that i think it exists mostly in the form of this anti-judaism mm-hmm. we are separate from the jews we are separate and different and better in what we're doing which was once again this misunderstanding of the, the true Jewish worship that worshiped and understood God's grace the right. same way we understand it now do. Okay. I say the same way. They don't all recognize Yeshua. Okay. I, I, I get that. I get that. And I know that's a critical piece. I get that. But if we don't change an atmosphere, okay. Uh, here, um, if we're not so, if we keep being so judgmental about mm-hmm. that and we insist that you have to give up your Judaism, give up being a right. Jew and become a Christian, that's not going to happen for most of those Jewish people. No, it's not. It's in not fa- attractive. It's not. In fact, I will repeat, I think I've mentioned this before on a podcast, the um, quote of Jewel Isaac, who said that the rejection of, of Jesus uh, by the Jews came uh, or was simultaneous with the rejection of the Torah by the church. It would be like asking them to 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 reject um, the Torah would be asking them to commit uh, mass suicide. Suicide, right? And he says there's been no no history of of any quite you know that uh, the, any that kind of people doing, doing that. that. Nobody's going to do that. So you know. Um, we're the ones that got have to change okay yes. within the church and it still has to happen okay mm-hmm. we're the ones that have to re, under, return to this true faith if we present to the jewish people a blonde-haired blue-eyed western gentile uh blt eating uh <laughs> jesus that's not going to work for them right we're the ones who have to shift our paradigm. And where it starts, Kathy, I believe, is understanding that the God that we serve, both Christians and Jews, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and, and Jacob. Jacob. And when we because when we make him generic, when he's just a just God, but not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or or his proper name, the, the Yudhe Vavhe, yes. Yehovah. When we do that, then there, it opens the door. We're talking about error, you know, that one a degree. A little bit of error, yeah. A little bit of error when, okay, all these pathways, you know, uh, I've heard even in Christian circles, Allah is the same as the God and Father that right. we worship. You know, all these errors that opens the door, and it opens the door for anti-Semitism once again. So when we understand our roots, our foundation, our, you know, we are one with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we, of course, 
believe that the Lion of Judah, Yeshua, is the Messiah. Right. Now, that's, that is the key difference between those of us who believe he is the Messiah and those who don't. But they still follow his word. Those who are faithful and love him and do it as a love response right. are following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what separates them from all other people groups That's in the world. That's why they've always been persecuted exactly. in this exactly way is because they have been faithful. Exactly. If they had not been faithful and had given up uh, the obedience, the recognition of who their God was, they would have assimilated in. There would have been no problem in, for them in, right. in Germany no, at all. They would have disappeared. They would have disappeared from the face right. of the planet, if they had not and been God faithful. would have been proven a liar. So right. they have, through their existence, and and of course there's the hand of God in, in in now protecting them, but through their existence have proven that He is who He says He is. The Holocaust, of course, is a whole nother topic as far as debate how and why that happened. Right. Uh, too much for us to address, right. and maybe for anybody to address <laughs> in any in, with any certainty. But. You know, with this controversy about Bonhoeffer. Um, there's actually, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, many people believe that, as we've said earlier, Bonhoeffer was kind of on the crest of the wave mm. in, in recognizing this anti-Judaism that existed within the church there in Germany, for the Church of the World, actually, um, and was just breaking out of that, kind of in a lead role in that. Mm. But then he was murdered. Yeah. In 1945, so his earlier writings do express some ideas of anti-Judaism. Mm -hmm. They start; he started to move away from that. But imagine if he had continued to live and had the advantage of looking at this and reassessing all of this out afterwards. I mean, I feel very strongly that I mean, he gave up his life just being on the edge, the right. outer edge of it. Right. What would he have done, and how would his writings been even stronger? I think after that going speaking against anti-judaism i would have loved to have seen it i mean you know, he was an intellectual a scholar his writings were incredible um and and when when the when this revelation came to him obviously that what what, what germany was doing is wrong i think it woke in him something and he realized what the church was doing was wrong obviously right and it would have been interesting to see how he would have reformed yes the church at that point I, I think so too you know it's interesting just looking at a little history there's there's these kind of two ideas about bonhoeffer and his legacy and um the Yad Vashem in 2003 rejected requests to designate Bonhoeffer as righteous among the Gentiles, mm. okay? And in part, because he never publicly rejected his anti-Judaic beliefs, okay? And one of the other criteria was that he had to give up his life by rescuing Jews. And they, even though he was in the resistance movement more, mm. and he was arrested for helping right. the Jews, they, they, they didn't feel like he met the criteria. Yeah. Okay, they didn't. And that's their prerogative, and I right. understand that they have a certain uh, criteria in order to, you, you don't want to dilute this you know, no, honor. No, no, um, But I, again, I think, I think if we would have seen him denounce those beliefs had he lived, uh, and if he had not been, you know, imprisoned, had he not been fighting this good fight, you know, during that time when he could have been writing, yes. um, you know, we might have seen that that happen. But, exactly. Uh, so I, I would be, I would not be of the group that, you know, martyrs Bonhoeffer because he did not do exactly what, you know, they said. Right. I think we need to hold up that, you know, he was on the edge. He was speaking against 
he was standing by himself against the church trying to make a change. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I think what we need to consider about his legacy is a more pressing question is to what extent does anti-Judaism still exist within the church today, either overtly under the surface. You know, if we have churches that are preaching replacement theology in any of its forms, okay, they don't generally stand up and say, today we're going to do a sermon about replacement theology. Okay, but they say, you know, things like we do not have to um, obey those Jewish commandments, those those Old Testament. Right. They separate the old. They put that page right. in between the old and the New Testament. I've heard even recently uh, churches who not only reckon, not just recognize a page between the old and the new, but I've heard of ones that actually said they were starting after the Gospels and at the beginning of Acts because that's where Yeshua died. So they were rejecting everything before that. Wow. I'm like, what? And there's all kinds. Well, in there's there. all but kinds. But Kevin, you know, I will say, I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but a leader in, in the movement that, that I'm credentialed in uh, went to Israel with me. And, and that was, you know, less than probably 20 years ago. And uh, he said that up until the time he was in Israel with me, that he was bare, it was pretty much replacement theology. Wow. So it still exists. And, exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, so if we, um, do we now then point out the splinter in Bonhoeffer's eye, you know, <laughs> right? Or acknowledge the log that's in our own eye as the church. I, I think that's what we need to do. That's biblical. Yeah. You know, I think that this is a more sobering discussion that we must have within the church. Yeah. You know, so in our next episode, we can't get through all of Bonhoeffer in no one way. episode at all. Uh, Gary brought up a, 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 a something that he had said. We used the phrase cheap grace. And that's what I really want to talk about next. Because according to Bonhoeffer, um, in our next episode, okay, I'm yes. not going to keep you guys any longer, okay? <laughs> All right. But cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. And by that he meant, if we're to be true disciples of Christ, we cannot expect to be treated any better than Christ was. He was rejected and he suffered greatly. Bonhoeffer believed that true faith inevitably leads to suffering and rejection. So instead of cheap grace, Bonhoeffer recommends to all believers costly grace, the kind of grace that requires our very lives. You know, the church in Germany during World War II, for the most part, was not willing to accept Bonhoeffer's costly grace. Bonhoeffer felt very alone, but he knew that he only answered to his audience of one, the only one whose opinion mattered. Now, ironically, the very behavior that has been that was seen as radical by the church in Germany is what has made Bonhoeffer so popular since Isn't then. That incredible. Yeah, what a little time does. You yeah, know? yeah. You know? In the act of his death, he proved that there really is nothing to be feared, and that we are fools not to know it and to rejoice in it. Mm. So, join us for our next podcast as we talk about Bonhoeffer's concept of cheap grace. And until next time, remember what the psalmist said, those who love your Torah have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time on Torah Talk.